Hey folks, welcome to the House of Kraus. I'm Richard Kraus. Thanks for coming by. Pull up a beanbag chair by the bar, pour yourself in a groni and sit back and uh, listen to the two conversations I have with two really fascinating guests. A little bit later on, Kim Coates is coming by. Right now, he is on the big screen in a movie called Goon, The Last of the Enforcers. He's probably better known, though, for his television work in television shows like Prison Break and Sons of Anarchy. We'll get to all that in just a second. First up, though... Judy Greer stopped by. Now, she wrote a charming, self-depreciating book called I Don't Know What You Know Me From, Confessions of a Co-Star, that chronicles her busy career as the second lead in dozens of movies and television shows like Jurassic World, Ant-Man, Arrested Development, and It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. She is, as her Twitter bio reads, that girl from that movie-slash-TV show, a familiar face on screens big and small. Right now, she's in a movie called Wilson, co-starring Woody Harrelson. It's the story of a guy who just doesn't seem to fit into the world. He is a round peg trying to fit into a square hole. Uh, it's a, a film from Daniel Close, who also wrote the wonderful Ghost World a number of years ago. Uh, we had a conversation about shooting in Minnesota, but later on, we talk about some of the perks of having one of her better-known roles uh, on the television show Archer. She plays Cheryl, and she says that, you know, she gets to sign boobs occasionally, which is a real perk to her job. Here's Judy Gray. Shooting in Minnesota, did that help you kind of get into the to the headspace of this character and yeah. this piece? Yeah, it really did. Um, it was, uh, I, I think, kind of a perfect place to, to shoot a movie like this. Um, it was set in Oakland, and they couldn't shoot it there for, I guess, tax credit reasons or Minnesota, whatever. The point is that Minnesota had, like, a great tax credit, and it had the exact right vibe of what um, Craig was looking for, Craig Johnson, the director, um, for, like, the feel of this town where it's, like, a big enough city, but it's not, like, a huge city like New York or L.A. or San Francisco, and you have, like, a progressive mentality in the town, and it just felt right, you know, it felt like a place that Wilson would live his whole life, and and just, like, the feeling that you got from the people there, um, the time of year, it's that, like, hot Midwestern humidity that kind of, like, for me personally and my character, Shelley, like, it it slowed me down, and I feel like Shelley is a, she's kind of slower, like, she's thoughtful, she's grounded, and all that stuff just played into it. It's kind of like cheating, but um, I'll take what I can get. <laughs> well, but it, it does, though, you know, where you are, yeah. the space, the costumes, I would imagine everything kind of, it starts on the page and then kind of swirls around to become the character. Yeah, and for the most part, I mean, I try to use all that stuff when I'm working and not fight against it, and... I remember even thinking, like, oh, it's humid and it's summertime. Like, we should just, like, make my hair curly because it's, like, why fight it, you know? And then that was, like, a fun, just, like, those types of things. Like, how you said exactly how she dresses and and just, like, the sort of slower feeling that you have in that hot summer sun. And it all worked really well. I just loved I loved being there for the summer, and I, all the people I met in Minneapolis, I felt so inspired by. Everyone was so special, and we met this great chef, and she was cooking such good food, and all the people I met in stores and bars and restaurants when I would have free time, and even the places that I went to exercise, <laughs> they were all so great and so fun, and, and they helped me like create this world and this character. Well, I've been to Minnesota just once, but I was really taken by how friendly everybody was. Yeah, it's nice to be nice, you know. That's like <laughs> that's what they say. Also, um, they were able to get such great local actors because of the Guthrie being there. Like, the, it's a like a actor's town, you know. Like, they were able to find all these these wonderful people to day play on the movie, which you also, I think that that was not something that they really thought about um, in going into it, or, or maybe they did, but I think that they really saw like what kind of local talent they had to work with, which is also really great. Like a really happy accident. So, oh, yeah, yeah, so yeah. Tell me about uh, reading Daniel Close's script, because, you know, I between the, the graphic novels and Ghost World and all that stuff, he really does sort of weave these kind of, you know, worlds all that, that feel unique. 
that feel uh, unlike almost any anything else. Tell me about the first time you saw the script and what your reaction was. Um, I uh, I hadn't read the graphic novel first, so I read that second. So the script was the first thing I ever read, and I mean, knowing that he was responsible for Ghost World, and that was a movie I loved so much. Um, I kind of knew tonally, like, what I was getting myself into, or I thought I did, and and I was just so taken with the character of Wilson. Um, sometimes when I read something, I fall in love with the role I'm going to play, and sometimes I fall in love with the movie itself. And in this case, I fell in love with the, the whole script, the whole movie, and this character I just thought was... I mean, I don't think he's a misanthrope. I think he's he loves people and he has high expectations of people and he's guileless and I found him so refreshing and so honest and someone that I would want to spend time with and I just really felt strongly that I uh, I felt that Craig Johnson would be making a huge mistake by not casting me. <laughs> I just was like, I have to be a part of this. I just want to be in it. I want to be able to see this movie pop up for years to come and just be so proud that I'm I have a small piece of that and and like I wanted to do what I could to sort of help Wilson and in his in his story. I thought like the storyline and him ending up with Shelley. I feel like it's a a tragic ending because you want Wilson and Pippi to be together and you, you I rooted for them I really did but <laughs> but then like but then it's really sweet like they both got exactly what they needed and they were better apart and sometimes that's that's the best thing that you can hope for you know and I think that also in relationships if you don't see what it could be you know you'll always wonder and I was just really happy to play the role of the person who's a grounded force in Wilson's life. Yeah, I mean, I think there's not a lot of actors that could have brought Wilson to life in the way that Woody Harrelson does. Uh, no. Because you, he, he's likable but difficult at the same time. And he is, I mm -hmm. think, when I was watching it, there were some moments that were so uncomfortable for me watching his behavior with other people and that sort of thing, but but you're compelled by it because it's Woody Harrelson, and with him comes a whole lot of charm, yeah. likability, well, and all that stuff. He is. He's so disarming. I mean, he can get away with things that most actors can't. I mean, you could never have. I'm trying to think of who. I mean, I probably shouldn't say a name of someone, but there's just I get, there's a there's a handful of actors that could never play this role because you would just hate him all the way through till the end, yeah. like. And that's the thing about Woody is Woody, he starts out, like, just Woody himself is so wonderful and lovely, and you root for him and love him. So so in the beginning, when he's kind of terrible, you still kind of root for him. I, after I saw the movie for the first time, I found myself really wanting to spend more time talking to people that irritate me. <laughs> <laughs> and figure out why. I was like, I am sorry. And, and figure out why they irritate you or what's, what's going on with their lives. Like, well, maybe that person is a Wilson. And like, Wilson is great. And I would want to hear Wilson's opinion about things. And maybe I'm shutting people down too quickly. And I need to give people who have strong opinions and aren't afraid to share them like a little bit more of a minute in my life. Maybe there's something to be learned from them. Is that the message of the movie? That's what I'm taking away from it. I mean, I, gosh, I should probably have a good what's the message of the movie line ready for today. Um, <laughs> you're my first interview. Congratulations. Well, thank you. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure you've made almost 40 interviews today. Too. Yeah, I'm glad you're number one. You're getting it real. Um, I, uh, before I start with all my, and I'm just kidding. I would never do that. Um, but I, 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 that's my takeaway is it's just like, Sometimes the people who say it like it is are, are actually worth listening to, I guess. I wish I had a little bit more Wilson in my own personality. Um, but, you know, like you already said, I don't know that anyone could pull that off but Woody, and I'm not sure if I could either. I think I would probably really offend people. <laughs> Maybe not. Hey, try it out. We'll see. You were you said you were drawn to this script, uh, you know, for because of the characters, because of all that stuff. What is it sort of overall, generally speaking, what are you looking for? Um, I'm, uh, in roles. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. I'm looking for, at this point, working with people that inspire me. Right. I really, I'm, 
I'm pretty happy with the roles I'm getting, and I, I, uh, I just want to work with more of my of my idols, and I definitely check that box with Woody. I can't check it with Laura Dern, though she's in the film. We have no scenes yeah, together, yeah. so I still have to circle back to her at some point. <laughs> Although we're becoming friends, which I have to pinch myself daily. Um, but uh, yeah, I. I don't know. I'd love to, like, I just, I love acting, but I just feel like I'm, I have to learn from some more people, and I and I don't know, Craig was such a wonderful director, and, like, he's such a patient, caring director, and he is very calm and, um, and sort of specific and emotional with his direction, and I really appreciated that. And so it was, like, a different experience for me on set than than I've had for a while, and I really liked that. I liked taking minutes to get to know what the scene was about and working on it a little bit, and we had a really aggressive shooting schedule, but I never felt rushed, and that's something that I think starts with the director. Right. I think we're probably almost out of time. I just have to ask you one thing about Archer. And yeah. Like it, 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 what has been because that show was so popular and so, what has been the the most interesting fan experience that you've had with people that recognize you from that show, recognize the voice and all that from that show? Well, I got to sign someone's boobs at Comic Con last year, and that was a highlight for some reason because. I think you really made it if you have your own action figure and people want you to sign their boobs. Um, Pam gets a lot of tattoos, like people who have Pam tattooed on them, and I've never seen a Cheryl tattoo, so I think that's my next goal. But, I mean, signing boobs is really fun, and I just have to say that, like, Archer fans are kind of cool. They're really special. Like, they're not crazy. I mean, they might be a bit crazy. I don't see that version of them, though. But, like, people love to say their favorite lines of Archer, and they really, truly love the show. And and I just always, I don't know, in the beginning when it first came out, if someone said, oh, I love Archer, I would be like, dude, you're special. Because people didn't really know about it right away. Right. Now so many more people watch it. But, um... Oh, I just went to a dinner party recently. I'm about to name drop, and John Hamm was there, and he played a role on Archer. And and we don't record together, so I never get to meet anyone who does it. But when I saw him, he was like, God, I love your work on Archer. I mean, I love Archer so much, I just wanted to be in it. And that was like, seriously? Oh, my God, that was so cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was kind of a highlight. So John Hamm and the boob signing. It, it's a, it, it's somehow they go together. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> they do work well in tandem. <laughs> well, um, Maybe I'll sign John Ham's boobs sometime, next time, yeah. and then I'll Please just kill myself. <laughs> that was Judy Greer. She talks about signing boobs as a result of being on the television show Archer. She's also on the big screen right now in a film called Wilson. Go check her out. Kim Coates, recognizable face. You know him from Prison Break, from Sons of Anarchy. Uh, he was in the movie Goon in 2011. He reprises the role as the charismatic coach of the Halifax Highlanders in Goon, The Last of the Enforcers. Uh, we had a wide range of conversation. We talked about his beginnings on stage all the way through to his groundbreaking work in Sons of Anarchy. Here's Kim Coates. I wanted to talk about Saskatoon. So you had never seen a play before. From what I understand, you had never seen a play growing up in Saskatoon, and yet you decided to take a, a drama course in school. What happened there? I just wanted to follow in your foot, foot, <laughs> footsteps, Richard. I knew that I would meet some girls if mm. I took a drama class. And I did. I certainly did. Uh, no, I, I, yeah, I'd never seen a play. I was just a redneck little hockey player, a Saskatoon boy, you know, captain of the football team, that sort of thing. And I, I really knew that I wanted to go to university after I graduated high school. And I did. And I went to the University of Saskatchewan, great university right in Saskatoon. And I, I took a, a drama class for fun. I was going to be a history teacher. Yeah. I really wanted to teach history. I, I loved history. And, uh, you know, over the course of four years there, I switched my, my major to drama in the third year. I ended up doing 20 
four twenty-five plays over a four-year span. You know that's yeah. that's unheard of. I was Summerstock involved, and uh, I knew that acting had found me, and I had found a way to live that was very inspiring to me, and so different from anything I knew until I was eighteen years old. So I stumbled into it, man, and I, I took it so seriously. This is really great too. Well, it, interesting. Like when I was growing up, I wanted to be a writer, and yeah. I, I have since gone on to write a bunch of books and do that sort of thing. But there was one guy. I grew up in rural Nova Scotia. There was one guy that I met who had written a book, and he became kind of a mentor to me because he said to me, "You know, you can do it. You actually like you, you can yeah. actually make this happen." Did you have anybody like that in your life? Because it seems like you you, you didn't exactly fall into it. But you must have had a role model here or I, there. I did. And people don't ask me that question enough. It was Susan Wright, the late Susan yeah. Wright, who, who passed away so sad in the early 90s at Stratford. Susan, when I was at university, Susan came into my life in maybe the, my second year, maybe third, probably second year. Tom Kerr, my mentor mm -hmm. at the University of Saskatchewan, brought in all these incredibly talent, Eric Schneider, Susan Wright, John Wright, who would come in and do a play. They'd direct a play. We'd, we'd, we'd get to be directed by these real actors who are making real money, right. being real stars at that time on stage in Canada. So Susan was the one gal who said, you're going to be a star. You're not going to Vancouver. You're going to Toronto when you graduate. You're going to meet my, my, my agent, Gary the late Gary Goddard, who took me on right away. So she was pivotal to my early stages as a pro after I got my equity card. So Susan Wright was definitely my girl back then. And meeting all those people and being immersed in it by the probably second into third, then you switched yeah. over in the fourth year. Um, what was the, what was the switch? Was there like a role that you like really yeah. embodied and said, okay, you know what? I think this is what I need to do. Y yeah. I, I, dude, you're hitting it out of the park <laughs> with your questions. Yes. It was, I'll never forget it. It was um, at the beginning, or was it the end of my third year uh, at the University of Saskatchewan, we were invited to the Edinburgh Drama Festival. Wow. And, and I was part of this play called Creeps by David Freeman. Cere I know this play. Yeah, but people with cerebral palsy. Correct. Right? Yeah, and, and I, it was really controversial It at was the time. super controversial. It took place in a bathroom. A lot, a lot of swearing, a lot of heavy subjects to talk about, but David Freeman won, won awards for it. We did it in Saskatoon. It was so well-received, we got invited to Edinburgh. I'll never forget going to Edinburgh with Tom Kerr and all my mates and putting on this play. We won a fringe first, which means it's the highest honor you can get. Little, you know, University of Saskatchewan drama, we, we, we won all the prizes. We came home, and I knew when I came home that I, I wanted to be a professional actor. And I remember going to every one of my buddies in Saskatoon, one-on-one, -on -one, uh, and go, I, 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 gotta, I gotta do this. Yeah. I, I, I'm gonna, right? they, they, every single one went, do it, bro, do it. As, as a collective seven or eight of us, there was a lot of teasing going on. Yeah. Really, what, actor, what? Well, they probably but had never met an actor they before, They never, right? and for, they're more proud of me than I am now. They have all the articles, all the stuff, all <laughs> the, yeah, it all worked out. So growing up in Saskatoon, you mentioned your, your inner circle of pals who you still seem tight with. Are you, do you have deep connections in Canada still? Unfortunately, I do. <laughs> Unfortunately, I do. I, they, they can't get rid of me. They've yeah. tried for, yeah, when I go to Saskatoon now, Richard, I need bodyguards. I'm not kidding. It's kind of, kind of crazy. <laughs> uh, the tuner knows when I'm coming and, uh, they all get very excited. They know my coffee shop. They know where I, where I hang out, and they're they're all trying to get selfies. It's it's pretty nuts. But Jim Lindsay and Larry Harley, and my two brothers Dale and Dean. My mom's still alive. I love her to to, to bits. Uh, they're all there. The community's never changed. Murray Totland, who runs the city now. I I have a great time when I go home, and I don't. I try not to go in the winter because I'm an absolute <laughs> pussy now. I've lost my Canadian. <laughs> Tough blood, uh, living in LA for so long. But no, the summers in, in Saskatoon are, are no better. Like, it's as good as you get. And do you find that going back grounds you a little bit somehow, or or is it just like a wave of nostalgia that no. washes over you? No, I've I've, I, you know, Richard, you know better than me. You're from Nova Scotia. Yeah. You know how much I love Nova Scotia. It's like a second home to me. Halifax was the Neptune Theater. Yeah. But I I it's where I'm from. I'm Canadian. Yeah. I I love going home. I've got a couple pieces of property that I can't tell you where they are, but I, I love coming to Canada, working in Canada, being in Canada. It's the best country in the world.
especially now. Don't get me going. Don't get yeah. me started. Well, 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 let's go back then to Romeo and Juliet. That was the first thing you did, right on stage? It was. Didn't want to wear tights? <laughs> <laughs> I'll never forget uh, taking it, my first drama class, yeah, and Rachel Fox, John Neville's daughter, Rachel, was, mm-hmm. was teaching me. She's a big agent here now in Toronto, has been for years. I love Rachel. She was the movement coach and teacher, and I, I said, no, I'm not wearing tights. <laughs> and she goes, oh, yes, you are. You are. We all are. That's what you do. You wear tights. What are you afraid of? I went, no, I'm, I'm, I'm actually not. So I would stand in the back. She would look at me with these furrowed brow, and I would wear these shorts instead of tights. And so my first play was Romeo and Juliet, where I played Balthazar, Romeo's yeah. servant. And we wore tights, man. So I, I put them on for that play. And I'll never forget opening that true story. So the football team, University of Saskatchewan, I never played for the University of Saskatchewan, but I knew all the guys. I probably should have played a year of football. It would have been good for me, but I didn't think I was big enough, really. Anyway, because they're monsters now. <laughs> anyway, I remember opening night, and we were in a little black box at the University of Saskatchewan, Greystone Theater. And so all the actors, the, the people were in, 100 people packed in the black box, the audience, and we were in these voms in the hallways ready to make an entrance, and a door flies open, and it was seven or eight of my best pals screaming, Coach, seek, coach, seek. And I took my sword out and I ran around the corner in my tights going, Shut up. The play's about to start. Get out. Oh, sorry, sorry, man. Sorry, dude. Yeah, sorry, sorry, man. Like, I took it so seriously. Even back then, my first play, I knew I, knew I was running into something pretty special. I'm speaking with Kim Coates. You can see him right now on the big screen in Goon, Last of the Enforcers. We'll get to that in just a little bit. You mentioned John Neville. John Neville is responsible for my love of theater. Uh, John Neville was the artistic director wow, at the Neptune so Theater. Wow, good to hear. Yeah, he, when I was growing up down there, uh, there was an exodus from England of these classically trained, huge stage stars who, for some reason, couldn't get work in Britain anymore, uh, and they came to Canada, and they took over a lot of regional theater, like the Neptune Theater. You know all this. And uh, he staged uh, A Midsummer Night's Dream and lowered Puck from the, the ceiling. And that speech, if we spirits have offended, think but this and all is mended, that blew my mind. 10-year-old, 11-year-old mind. I'd never seen anything like it. Made I me fall in love with the theater. Yeah, yeah, made me fall in love with the theater just then. And that was at the Neptune Theater where you spent a fair amount of time. I did. In fact, John was the artistic director mm-hmm. when Tom Kerr got me to do my very first play out there called Ever Loving uh, with with, with uh, Bill Carr, Rick Fox, uh, Allison, damn, we had a good time, six-hander, about the Second World War, War Brides. And that was my introduction to Halifax. And, and so Tom Kerr ended up taking over for John Neville. John went on to yep. Stratford. And so I did... I think Richard eleven, maybe twelve plays. And we're talking like eighty two, three, something. We're talking like eighty one, eighty two, eighty three, yeah. and eighty four. Like over a four year span. And Tom did something crazy in the like eighty three, eighty four. We did West Side Story and Romeo and Juliet in rep, wow. which is never done. It's yeah. just too crazy, but we did. Yeah. Then we did Cabaret and Twelfth Night in rep the next year. And the Neptune it still is, but it was rocking back yeah. then. You know, you know yeah. the theater just changed when you saw Puck being. You know. uh, it, it it blew my mind, and and that, you know, now that in the, in the U.S. and I would I don't want to really get into this, but with the National Endowment for the Arts being cut and that kind of thing, I fear that a lot of that is going to go. That wonder that can come from exposing young people to theater and the arts. Uh, you know, sports is very important. You grow up playing sports, doing all this stuff. I think just as important is exposing them to arts. It changed my life. It changed the certainly the trajectory of my life. But you see, smart guys like you who acknowledge that and talk about it and live it is exactly what we need more of today. Yeah. That's why I have all these charities. That's why I created Kids in Saskatchewan. That's why I go on bike rides to save the film industry in Saskatchewan, happily. Because without art, we are left with nothing, like nothing. We take it for granted. Yeah. Oh, movies, oh, plays, oh, operas, oh, always be or there. music. Yeah. They'll always, no, we, we need to nurture them and make sure we never lose them. And there are, just to let you know, because I, I do live in the States, there are many people, just like you and me, yeah who are absolutely appalled and affronted at to what seems to be happening with the lack of care with arts 
but we'll, we'll be all right because there's just way too many incredible people who, and we do, we have to fight for everything we get, it seems, in the arts, right? Yeah. And we never give up. So we'll, we'll be all right. It's just a very weird time down there. Halifax, at the time, though, great theater, great little art scene, but it wasn't really a conduit to Hollywood or to, you know, it uh, Los Angeles. It, it didn't seem that way to me. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I, I got to go back and do it again. <laughs> no, but what happened there for you? It, it was what every young actor needs in their life. You need championing. You need a mentor. You need people who can help open doors. An agent, you need someone up here. You need that early help of talented people need doors open. Yep. Halifax to me was the Kim Coates. When I, when I signed on with the late Gary Goddard, my very first agent in Toronto, you can imagine me, tough guy, blue eyes, cheekbones, yeah. movies, we're going to do movies right away. And I went, no, actually, we're not. We're not. I need more stage. Yeah. I knew in my heart that I was, I had some talent, but I needed more stage before I wanted to do movies. And what does the stage give you then? Well, as Canadians and the Brits, they say we, that's where it all begins, yeah. to create characters. What do they wear? How do they think? Memorizing your lines. Um, I'm going in continuity through an entire character and understanding art and work and Shakespeare and, and how to breathe. And it was just paramount to me to be the greatest actor I could on stage. And so that's what I did. And so Halifax was that unbelievable conduit for me, as you said, mm -hmm. into the acting world of stage. I did 11 plays, Richard, over four years there. Yeah. I was at the Magnus Theater. I went to, to, to Edmonton. I worked there, Saskatoon, the Persephone Theater. And then when Stratford came calling, can, can we talk about Absolutely, the, is that yeah. Right? We're, we're kind of working our way up to Macbeth at Stratford. Yeah. yeah youngest so, Macbeth in the history of Stratford. Yeah, I was. I was 12. <laughs> yeah. I, I, uh, so John Neville, who you, you yeah. know, who changed, you remember it as a 10-year-old boy when Puck was lowered down from the ceiling at the Neptune Theater. Uh, and I love that, I love that image in my head. John Neville was running the young company at Stratford, and he invited me in 1985, uh, and we did and Lucy Peacock, who's still there, the late John Moffat, uh, Kevin McNulty. We had some incredible, talented people, young company for yeah. a reason, right? These young stars are going to burst onto the main stage at Stratford any minute now. So I, I, I did that in 1985, like, wow, can you imagine? Kim Coates, Stratford, right? And then Tom Kerr uh, took over the next year, and uh, they, we did Macbeth, and the, the Resistible Rise of Arturo Ui, Bertolt Brecht play that should be done every day now in yeah. America. It's, if you don't know it, you need to read it. It's the most incredible play by Bertolt Brecht about, uh, uh, you know, about what happened in Nazi Germany through Al Capone. It's an incredible play. Anyway... There was always going to be two Macbeths. Jerry Atten played the other one. I played one. I was the youngest one ever. You bet. John Neville directed mine. Wow. Um, and then we toured it in America, and then America came calling from that. So tell me a little bit about playing Macbeth. I had Ian Lake in here last week, and Ian Lake most recently played Macbeth at Was Stratford. it last season? Yeah. I and, think it was, right? And they, they filmed it. So what the Stratford Festival is doing right now is filming uh, every one of Shakespeare's plays. The idea is that wow. they will take all 32 or 33 of the of the of the main shows uh, and have create an archive. And uh, Ian Lake plays in this particular one, and he said that Macbeth is one of those roles, like Hamlet, uh, that changes an actor because it is endlessly deep. No matter how often you do it, no matter how many times you say those words, you can find more in them somewhere, and that's why the plays have lasted for. 400 years. Was that your experience playing it? Well, that's absolutely true. Yes, it was. And I, I, I need to just delve into one thing in the supernatural with Macbeth, if I may. Mm -hmm. We all know it's called the Scottish play. Yep. You, you don't want to say it, you know, when you're in a theater. There's so Bad many. Luck. Yeah. There's just so many, the witches and the prophecies and what happens to Macbeth and his, his, his incredible path to destruction from a really good man through his wife, and we all know the play, and, and yes, it's, it, it, and Ian's right, there's so much to, I mean, I, I, we all have books of every word that Shakespeare ever wrote, and right. what it means, and what it meant to him, and all the, you're a writer, all these incredible, brilliant writers who, so you, you do all that, then you rehearse, then you play it, then you lose your mind, and then you tour it, and then everyone gets colds, and, and it's such a dark play, and, but I need to tell you about opening night for me. It was 1986, this is absolutely, 
true and what happened for my opening. It was a Thursday night, and there was a massive thunderstorm that came to Stratford. And it was pounding. It was windy. It was packed. Everybody was there. Conlock from the Globe and Mail, right. the Star, John Neville, obviously. Oh, the big was, shots, yeah. They were, and you couldn't get a ticket. It was, and in the middle of the play, just before tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace, the lights went out. A crack of light, lightning hit so hard, Richard, we lost all power. And the man himself is so lost, his wife's just been told he, she's dead. His world's basically over. And I'm on top of this, this rise. And the lights went out. There was complete silence. And I remember myself thinking, this is exactly the way this is supposed to go down. Yeah, yeah. And I, I started walking with my sword, making marks in the ground. I didn't speak. I was, they could hear me walking. And then the emergency lights came on. And I kept talking about tomorrow. I did the whole speech in these emergency lights. And then the lights came back on, and Donald Bain comes in and, 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 and wants me to, do you want to dress up? And I go, get my armory, get my stuff. I'll never forget it. And I think that that is absolutely the way it's supposed to go down. There was some other spirits going on out there for Kim Coates night. I hosted a screening of a movie called The Devils, really obscure Ken Russell film that I happened to write a, a book about. And so Guillermo del Toro and I got on stage. We were talking wow. about this movie wow. that Guillermo loves and that, you know, and that I wrote a book about. And then we showed the movie, hard to get prints. It was censored and banned everywhere. And about two seconds in, the movie burst into flames on the screen. And so we fixed that. No, are you kidding me? Nope. Five minutes in burst into flames again. I'm like, this thing is cursed or it's awesome. And it turned out to be kind of awesome. We eventually showed the entire thing, but it was that moment that I was like, there are other forces at work here right now. I'm, I'm not a, a deeply religious dude <laughs> at all, yeah. but I do believe in, in spirituality and, and stuff. And yeah, there's stuff going on. <laughs> Got to have uh, a little conversation about Sons of Anarchy though with you. From what I understand, you auditioned for two other parts. Nothing really happened. Three months later, you're playing golf. You've got your phone off because you're on the golf course. Damn you check straight. and you've got 18, e or 18 emails Damn or 18 straight. voicemails or something saying, get in here right now. Tell me what happened. Yeah, it, it was really crazy. I had decided that it was time to do something uh, like a regular on a television show. They sent me Sons of Anarchy. I read it, the pilot. Um, it was pretty amazing. It was an amazing read. So I read in, I went in, we all had to audition, everybody, Charlie, Ryan Hurst, everybody. Probably not Katie Seagal, because she was married to Kurt Sutter, so maybe she got a free pass. <laughs> but I remember auditioning for Clay. I was too young. I auditioned for Bobby. I wasn't right. But I'll never forget the experience. They thanked me for coming in. Um, it was probably maybe two months later, maybe, maybe two, maybe three. You might be right there on, on your research, but nonetheless, I'm on the golf course. Like you said, I never turn my phone on, on the golf course, uh, cause I'm a freaking professional. I like <laughs> to think I am as I smack the ball into the woods, every other shot. Anyway, <clears throat> yeah, there was a lot of messages and they were from my agents, my managers and my wife going, well, you've lost it now. And I said, what happened? Kurt said, I wanted to see you six hours ago for what they're reshooting the pilot. They've looked at the pilot, they've thought about this, and John Langraff, our fearless CEO of FX, decided to spend $1.4 to reshoot the pilot because they fired the original Clay. Right. They hired Ron Perlman that morning. Ron had to go to Fox Studio to, to test. <laughs> they hired him that morning, and they never had Tig. They never had this character, the Sons of Anarchy, this, this, this you know, Sergeant-at-Arms Tig character, and they realized they'd screwed up on that, so they needed Tig, and they never forgot my audition. They knew him as an actor, obviously. They wanted to see me six hours ago, and I said, well, call. They did. Kurt said, can you be here in 10 minutes? And I said to my agents, no. It's he, funny because six hours doesn't seem like that long, but in Hollywood terms and when things are happening like that, it's an eternity, right? Oh, no, I, I thought for sure it's over because they were reshooting the next morning yeah. at 5 o'clock in the morning. This is now, you know, 3 in the afternoon, <laughs> 2 in the afternoon. So I thought it was over for sure. But they said, no, if you can get there. I said, no, I'm going to go home, put my boots on, my jeans, my T-shirt. Then I'll go. So anyway, I got there an hour later. And sure enough, long room, long room. There's Kurt Sutter, tattoos every long hair, the whole deal. And I'm walking and I go, what's, what's going on, brother? And he goes, uh, well, um, there's this character called Tig Traeger. And uh, 
And I said, well, I, I need to see something. And he goes, we don't really have anything for him right now. We just, I said, well, I have to see something. He goes, well, I can show you one scene that might be in the first episode after the pilot. And I read it. And it was so crazy and violent and psychotic and funny. I said, you know, this guy's not for me. I'm, I'm really yeah. careful with my bad boys. Craig. Was it the violence that you didn't? It was just, I, I, I thought to myself, see, in a movie, Richard, you know this. In a movie, you read the whole movie. Yeah. You, you don't know the guy yet, but you but a series, I'm really careful with my bad boys. Right. I, I couldn't think of, why would I want to play someone so dark? And, and a series, like, what if it lasts for a year, two years, three? And you're going to have to live with and that I, darkness, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Kurt stopped me in my, in my tracks and said, listen to me. This guy is the sergeant at arms. He's the toughest guy there. He is psychotic, but he's going to have a moral compass that's going to blow your mind. He's going to be funny. He's going to be a championing the underdog. Trust me on this. He's going to be a full circle of emotions. Please come on this ride with us. So I said, well, uh, all right, all right. And so I, I let me think about, you know, so I said, just hang out. So I just went outside with his assistant. And I got a call from my agent like two minutes later, and she said, you can go home now. And I said, what, what happened? They lowballed us. I said, oh, okay, yeah. I'm out. So by the time we signed, it was 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> I, had, I was clean shaven, short hair. I didn't know who this guy was I was about to play at all, but I could freaking ride. Because yeah. you've been riding for years. My whole life. Yeah. And Kurt said, as I walked up the door, he said, you ride, right? I go, oh, yeah. So I started that Harley at 5 o'clock in the morning, put on clothes, boots, didn't know how, what I was going to look like. They gave me my cut. Didn't even have much badges on it. It was just really time to... And Ron Perlman and I were meeting each other in the van going, I'm a fan, I'm a fan. We're the new two new guys. And everybody looked at us like, who are these guys? They already shot the pilot. Now we're reshooting. Seven years went by, man. And that was an incredible ride. Have you ever read Hunter S. Thompson's book on the Hells Angels? I have. It is, for me, a lot of the, the descriptions of why he liked to ride... Yeah. Uh, really triggered something. I mean, I think you, you can explain it, but for me, that was the closest uh, to in words that I've ever read about why people like to ride motorcycles. Well, you're obviously such a good, good you know, writer because you, you you know good writing. And uh, I don't know. There's something about being on a motorcycle. I know that you know today. There's no doubt about it. You have to be careful that more than you've ever been in your life. Everyone's texting. Everyone's on their yeah, phones. No it's just it's so screwed up, right? Uh, but if you do ride and if you can get out there and be on the plains or in Banff or even in Toronto, outside Toronto, so many beautiful spots to ride, there is nothing like it yeah. to be uh, on, on a motorcycle. Sonny Barger, who you know, started the Hells Angels uh, in the 50s, he was in the show, uh, our show, and so I got to know Sonny uh, a little bit. Yeah. And you know, I, 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 uh, I'm an actor. I'm a father. I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm a husband. I, I don't hang, but to be immersed in it for a minute, it's, uh, it's a whole different life, man, that whole club mentality. Well, Tig could have been a one-dimensional character, I think, quite easily. Sure. And, and still been, you know, entertaining. How did you, uh, was it on the page, or what did you bring to it that made him something that was so memorable? Thanks I'm, so much. I mean that. I get told that every day of my life. I'm so spoiled with that, those kind of comments. It's Kurt Sutter. Yeah. Sutter, getting to know me and my vibe and my weirdness, my humor, my method, um, he couldn't write for all of us all the time. You had Katie, Charlie, and Ron. The, you're the top three. Yeah. Then you had me and Tara and, and Opie and, and Tommy and Boone and Theo and Unser. You know, this, the second and third tiers of the leads, right? So he couldn't write for us all the time, but when he did write for, for Tig... Uh, I'll argue with anyone. I had the best stuff. I mean, I got the best stuff, the most emotional stuff, the funniest stuff, the craziest stuff. Tig was really, really blessed by some really great writing, and Kurt gave him that fear of dolls. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know what I mean? And necrophilia. I mean, honestly, what is he thinking? But it worked out for me. And how did Tig survive for the entire season? Because around season three, it looked like maybe he, you know, might not make it. Should I tell the truth, brother? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't know. I've heard stories that, you know, Sutter might want to have killed Tig off in season five, that whole season with Pope and right. his daughter and my daughter and watching her die in front of me the way that was so gruesome. And I, you can't even imagine what that was like for me. But uh, 
I was told that the high the hierarchy of they said you can't kill coats. <laughs> There's no way we're killing coats. Yeah, yeah. So the fans would have lost. I, I don't know, man. I think I had a lot of support out there. So I was good. I didn't care. I really didn't. I had such a great time doing that show. Um, but Kurt did something really smart. Every year from the fifth season on, he would tell the leads, you're going to die this year. He wouldn't say when, right. wouldn't say how, but he would give Ryan Hurst, Tara, Katie, Ronnie, Unser. I mean, he told them, he told them all, Theo, you know, how, what season they were getting at the beginning of the season. And I never got that phone call. So I, I knew that I was going to probably last to the very end, and I did. And it changed things for you. Yeah, it did. Yeah. I mean, I, I never got into this business to be a celebrity. You've heard me say this, Richard, and I mean it. I could care less about any of that stuff. You're not going to see me doing cocaine or dancing on a dance floor or, or you know, in, in, a, in a whorehouse. It's just not, it's not happening. Yeah. I, don't, I, I just, you know, I, I could care less about all that stuff. But... From the celebrity, uh, I, I've turned it into my charities. I've, I, you know, I can't go anywhere anymore without being recognized, and I guess that's part of being on a successful television series, right? Big time TV changes things. Like it, it, it just. Did you changes know that, it. Richard? Did you know of that before me? Even I didn't know the power of TV. Well, no, Did, I, I, yeah, I, I have. Tell seen me it your with, experience of how you knew that, because well, I, damn, I've, see, I, I've seen it with with other people, you know, and and uh, other people that uh, would be on television uh, and have, you know. Big careers on stage, but then you do uh, three seasons of a sitcom, and you know everything's different afterwards. And and your profile is raised. You're writing books. You're doing. You know it, it opens up uh, a, a thousand doors for you. You're on Sons of Anarchy for seven years. Changes everything for you, and you funneled that back, that success back into your charities and using your profile to do something. A little different than a lot of celebrities do. A lot of celebrities roll around in their money and, and uh, you know, buy $30,000 pairs do of they? shoes. You didn't do that. Bastards. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, I'm just really uh, grateful yeah. that my hard work has paid off. And I, I really am grateful that I listen to my gut and I'm not afraid to fail. Yeah. And saying yes to Sons was a, was, a, was a game changer because of the power of TV, of a successful series, of a series that people so remember you from. Yeah. And so I was always busy before Sons. Well, now it's off the charts. Now it's really, I say no half the time, more than that. It's only what I want to do, working with the greatest people, doing the greatest projects. I've done seven movies, two miniseries, and a freaking sitcom, if you can believe it. Yeah. Over the last two years since Sons has been over, and, uh, and one of them is, is, is Goon. Goon 2, baby. Did you yeah. see it? Have you seen it, Richard? Oh, yeah, I have seen it. Yeah. And you know, the thing that I loved about this movie, unlike you, I'm not a giant sports guy. I, I, I'm probably the only Canadian who's never been to a live hockey game. <laughs> but I love this movie. What am I doing movie. here? <laughs> what am I talking to you for, Richard? Well, I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. <laughs> because this movie, uh, I like Goon, and I like uh, Goon Last of the Enforcers, because they're not really about hockey. They're about love. They're about Doug's love of the game. They are about the loyalty between... Uh, teammates, they are very specific about being set in the sports world, but the messages are universal. The, if you love what you do, you're not working. You're 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 following your passion. If you are surrounded by great people, you're you look forward to being with those people. And you know, there's a lot of that that comes through in Goon, Last of the Enforcers. You've got uh, Doug, played by uh, Sean, Sean William Scott. Scott. Um, who loves the game and his opponent in it, played by Wyatt uh, Wyatt Russell, Andrews Kane is his uh, character's name, only loves to win, and that's what this boils down to: love of the game versus loving of the of the win and what you get out of it. Yeah, uh, just touching on what you said earlier, Jay Michael Dallas, who directed the first one, yeah. Jay wrote the first one, starred in it. Jay directs the second one, um, and he's in also it. in it as well. And he's in it, yeah. And he and he he's and he wrote it. It's an, a massive undertaking, but you're right. Jay Baruchel's love for his Canadians, for yeah. the goon uh, element of what it used to be, from the book that he bought, from the scripts that he wrote. He never, ever got away from exactly what you said, the love mm -hmm. of family. Is this movie restricted? You bet. Is there swearing? Absolutely. Is it violent? Is it violent? Aha. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> but is it funny and beautiful and heart-rendering? You bet it is. For so many reasons of why we're freaking Canadian. We love hockey. 
We're the best at it in the world. And the bond that you get in hockey, in those, in me playing Ronnie Hortense again, yeah. the, the head coach, the bonds that you have for your coach, and I remember playing hockey, it's in the movie. Um, now we're traveling on airplanes instead of buses in the first one. There's something weird going on. The NHL's come down to our level, right, the, the Halifax Highlanders. So there's not room for the goons anymore. So Doug has to go away, and he meets Liev Schreiber in some punch-up contest on the, on the rink, which is hysterical. Yeah but touching yeah. because in the first one it was Liev and, and Sean who were battling bad guy, good guy, right? Well, now Liev comes on my team and there's a different bad guy cowboy with the black hat and that's, that's Wyatt Russell yeah. and he was amazing. There, we all came back and I'm telling you what, bro, I missed the premiere last week because I was in Europe working and I'm so sorry I wasn't there. But from uh, accounts by all my boys, it was fantastic and funny and people are going to love it. I think people will like it. I mean, certainly Goon has become like a giant cult hit. People still talk about that movie. It was six years ago. I couldn't believe it was six years ago, for yeah. one thing. 2011. Yeah. When you got the call that there's another one coming, you were like, what? It's been five years. It must have been five years, probably. Do, do you know what? No. You know no. what You know what happened, Richard, was I was in contact with Jay and Michael Dows and David Gross and Hartley Gorenstein every year. Right. Every other month. <laughs> going, what's going on? It's coming. What's happening? It's coming. Are you still in Suns? Yeah, I am. So I was involved in those phone calls the whole time. So when they finally, finally were getting close to finalizing the script, Michael Dust wasn't available. Jay took over. He's going to be the most brilliant filmmaker in the planet. Jay is a director. Unbelievable. Michael, was, he's already brilliant. Yeah. So Jay's following in great footsteps. And, and so when I knew it was ready to go, well, Kimbo was off Sons. <laughs> Liev was free from his big show yeah. down, in, down in Hollywood. And it, just, it, it was a miracle that it all worked out, that we could all, Sean William Scott, get together and shoot it in a six, seven-week period in, in, in Barrie in that summer two yeah, years yeah. ago. Thank, thank goodness we were available. Jay was sitting in that chair a few weeks ago, and he told me that once uh, his television show wraps, whenever that is, it's doing well, so whenever that wraps, whenever uh, How to Train Your Dragon, that kind of eventually goes away, which, you know, it's got years left in it probably, it but whenever it does, he said he probably won't act anymore. And he said he just wants to direct. See, see, when I hear that, right, it makes me happy that he is following whatever gut he has because the heartbeat of his gut is exactly where it needs to be. Yeah. Um, let's not worry about Jay Baruchel maybe not acting again. I'm sure he will. But you know what? He is such a brilliant guy who's so smart. He's shy. Yeah. He, he gets nervous in all the right ways. But his creativity never stops. I don't think he sleeps. Yeah. Um, so whatever Jay says about Jay... Um, I'll, I'll support uh, till the cows come home. Honestly, he's, he's exactly where he, he should be. Tell me about Coach Ronnie Hortense. What do I need to know about him? He swears so effing much. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, I, I discovered the guy the first time I played him, and, and Jay and I both got nominated for his yeah. CSA awards. We didn't win, God damn it! But <laughs> it's nice, always nice to get nominated. They say it's my third nomination. I'm 0 for three, but who's counting? <laughs> uh, yeah, no. So I, I sort of knew Ronnie, but then now, how does he change? It's four years later. The NHL, uh, you know, they've shut shut down. Yeah. So the boys are coming down to the minor leagues, and the script. And, and I loved how Jay had a scene where in the first one, I guess, became quite famous where I'm yelling in a bus, right. screaming in a bus about this, uh, this isn't effing baseball. He wanted a form of that. So now we, we whisper one in an airplane, yeah. not to scare the grannies and the little kids. Yeah. It's hysterical. It is funny. Yeah. You know, so Jay, Jay knew what he was doing. So for me to play Ronnie, I just, when I put that suit back on, I put my ring back on. <laughs> I got my little, you know, Tortorella goatee thing yeah. back on. He just came back like that, like yeah. that. It was I was right, right in the groove again. Fun to revisit stuff, I suppose, oh, right? It is when it's successful. Yeah, you know, and getting the same guys back. It's that's on. amazing. Considering, it's amazing. you know, Ray Donovan still very much, right? you know, there's a, so much, so many moving parts here that when I saw that they put everybody, like everybody's oh, back, Allison Pill, the whole bunch e of them, everybody, yeah. and and Liev Schreiber, if I may. He had a minute and a half. Yeah. And Jay and the producers had to work around his skate. He came and he's a great skater. Yep. He skated as a kid. 
lived in San Francisco with Canadian parent, I think. He, he, he knows what he's doing. But his feet were sore. He was uh, training for a boxing movie right, right after that. He's doing Ray Donovan, but he needed to be in the, in the, in the film. Yeah. So we put that wig on, we put those skates on, and he was there for a minute and a half, exhausted, cranky, hitting it out of the park, <laughs> but we made it work. The hockey looks real. Good. And and part of that, I think, is uh, Wyatt Russell. Now, yeah. when I saw the movie, I didn't realize that he had been a professional hockey player yeah. and won a, uh, won a championship in the yeah. Netherlands somewhere and uh, and then had to bow out because of, of some injuries and that yeah. kind of thing. Never wanted to be an actor, uh, you know, didn't want to follow in the family's footsteps. And he told me a couple of weeks ago, he said, you know, hockey uh, was my love and is my passion. And that comes through in this movie. And he was a goalie. Yeah, yeah. Can you imagine? Yeah. I mean, they always say the goalies are the best skaters on the team yeah. for a reason, right? You you see him play the the, the tough guy in this movie. Uh, he's so talented, and he skates like a pro, and he was a goalie. Yeah. So that's the level of how little kids, then midget, band of midget, yeah. and then juvenile, and then they get a call, and they get drafted. They're so good. Uh, it, it made us all look silly, really. They're real pros. If acting hadn't worked out for you... Do you think that sports would have been an option? Because you were a big sports guy. I, I, I think I would have been a teacher. I really mean that. History I think teacher, I mentioned yeah. that. Yeah, I really loved history and I still do. And I, I, I think I probably would have ended up teaching. I was always pretty good at a lot of things, but yeah. not m- fabulous in one. You know right. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like I was a good baseball player. I was a good hockey player. I was right. a good football player. But I wasn't, a, I wasn't, I just loved it all. So I was an athlete, but no, never good enough to, to make it into the pros. Was it the competition involved? Was it the discipline? Which are things that I think probably could apply to your current job as I well. I think you're right. Yeah. No, I think you're right. And I think it was a different time. Yeah. We're talking about 19, in the 20s, the 30s, <laughs> you know, in the, just the, over the turn of the century when I was growing up and I'm so old. No, I, it was a different time. And when I was going to public school, Thornton, it's a block away. Yeah. We always had our hockey sticks. It was minus 38. We didn't know any different. You had a toque, you had mitts, yeah. you had a big parka, or you died. Yeah. So we'd, we'd play, we'd get all sweaty, we'd go inside, and throw the, the... It was all about sports for me. Um, and comic books. It was a different time. Yeah. And so thank goodness for sports. And I do think that a lot of kids today uh, should be playing more, should be outdoors more, should be playing more sports for the camaraderie, for the team spirit, all those things. I, do, I, I, do, I think they'd read more, I think they'd be sleeping better at nighttime, because it's a different world we live in now, and uh, iPhones, and it's all gone kind of crazy, and I know we need them and everything, but my growing up was very special, and sports were a big part of it. Well, that's it. That's all. Don't let the door hit you on the ass on the way out. Thanks for coming by to the House of Kraus. I want to thank my guests, Judy Greer and Kim Coates. Most of all, though, I want to thank you for coming by every single week. We put up a new show every single Monday. You never know who's going to stop by for a visit, so perhaps if you come visit, you might meet one of your favorite people.